0: Welcome to Season 3 of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kakis-Wolf. This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley is brought to you by The Bold Italic.
1: Hey, uh, Sunil, i got a question for you.
0: Yes. Uh, Do you like art? I love art. What kind of art? Oh, my gosh. I, I love it all. But one thing that I wish I would do more of is go to the theater.
1: That's an interesting thing to think about, going to the theater. You know, we right now are so pressed for attention that we're spending our time going out to dinner. We're spending our time staring at our phones. We're spending our time watching Netflix and Hulu. What do you, you watch a lot of Netflix?
0: Yeah, so I watch a lot of Netflix, and I usually have my phone open while I'm watching Netflix.
1: Yeah, so I asked the question about art, and you say theater, And then we start talking about all the other stuff that's going on, and it's kind of interesting when we think about all those dynamics and the Bay Area in particular, because we've had a long and vibrant art scene, a really long and vibrant art scene, in fact.
0: And we have some all-stars here based in the Bay Area right now making original shows that are outstanding.
1: Yeah, a little-known secret in the Bay Area is that we actually have one of the uh, most prominent theaters in all the U.S. that's not on Broadway. The American Conservatory Theater is based here in San Francisco. It's been in operation for the last 50 years. It is uh, kind of operating two venerable theaters, the Geary Theater and Union Square, and then the Strand on Market, and has some of the most interesting and evocative pieces of art coming through the theater world available anywhere. And not everybody knows about
0: it. No, uh, they don't. And we were lucky enough to bring in two people from the American Conservatory Theater. Two people that
1: are really setting the stage for what Bay Area Theater is going to be for the next decade plus. Pam McKinnon just joined ACT as the creative director. And the creative director is a pretty big deal in the art world and the theater world in particular. And her number one person, Annie Donald, who also worked with her, the two of them are the ones to pick all the shows and then help find all the directors and the actors and make the art here that is
0: unbelievably impactful. This was a really interesting interview. I, of course, asked the attention span question, which is, how do you keep people engaged for two hours in a theater without getting them to check their phone or posting on Instagram?
1: Yeah, uh, it is the question that I think they're trying to solve for right now.
0: So, enjoy today's interview, and we hope that you, uh, you check out a show. Welcome to uh, This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. We have two great guests today.
1: Uh, we want to start with
2: you, Pam. Are you from San Francisco? I am not. I'm from Buffalo, New York and Toronto, Ontario. And for the last about 24 years, I've been living in New York City. Uh, did you ever think at any point in your life you would be in the Bay Area? I mean, I've worked here a number of times over the years, and I've always had a tug to it. I have uh, cousins, aunts, and uncles who live, actually live in Vancouver. So there is sort of a West Coast, you know, mountains in the distance, sand and sea yearning that I think is kind of bred in the bone. But I'm at heart a city person, and there's something about the Bay Area best of both that has always appealed.
1: Do you like the Paris aspect of San Francisco or the Brooklyn aspect of San Francisco?
2: Interesting question. I mean, I guess the Paris aspect of San Francisco, although, you know, I've had some magical days already, like an inner sunset, that feel like neither. Like that feels a little more, you know, whether it's Southern California, whether it's Queens, I mean, you know, sort of less Brooklyn, less Paris.
0: Yeah, and uh, we had a guest, uh, Sam Lesson, who was a previous guest, who talked about that very debate of what San Francisco is becoming more like. Seems to be a recurring theme on this podcast, actually.
1: Nobody really knows. And and Andy, if we switch over to you, uh, you actually have some roots here in San Francisco, right? All my roots.
3: All my roots. So I grew up in Los Angeles, or as we call it, enemy territory, because I hate the Dodgers. And I grew up a diehard Giants fan. My grandmother was a diehard Giants fan, and sort of spread that across the whole family. My great-grandfather, so her father was a chef that opened the Tonka Room. And my great-great-great-grandfather on my father's side, back in the 1870s or 80s, uh, was a mayor of San Francisco and actually named uh, Geary Street. So you're Uh, kind of like a San Francisco um, royalty. We just didn't even know. (laughs) But there was an immigrant side of my family. My mom's side was from China. uh, And my father's side was an old San Francisco family from Palo Alto.
1: So maybe not a serious question, but how many times have you been in the Tonga Room in the boat in the middle of the pond?
3: I... Have never been in the boat in the middle of the pond. They don't let you there unless you're
0: playing
1: drums or uh, you're in the house band that it's night. It's kind of like my dream here yeah. in the weird restaurant yeah. scene. Like, I just want to be in the boat in the middle of the pond.
0: I, I'm just happy to be in, in the room with a San Francisco celebrity. So is it the kind of thing where, I mean, you get some special super secret passes to go to places that no one else does?
3: You know, I wish I could say that the Tonga Room comps me, but um, when I visited there a couple years ago when I moved here, and my mom and I were visiting the Tonga Room for the first time since she was a kid, uh, she could barely get up the hill to get to the Fairmont. (laughs) She almost collapsed. So um, not only do I not have comps, but I have no free ride up there. They don't pick me up. Uh, They barely know who I am, so...
0: (laughs) Well, you should start name-dropping and, you know, say your connection to old mayors of the city. Maybe that'll win you points, maybe not. But you both ended up back here, and you're here now. And uh, tell the audience in your own words sort of what you're working on at ACT, uh, American Conservatory Theater, and, like, how you ended up here, uh, what shows you're working on, anything that would be helpful for the audience for context.
2: Great. So I just became um, artistic director of ACT, American Conservatory Theatre, after a long uh, freelance career as a director. So, you know, a very sort of adolescent hop from project to project to project director. And I've been thinking about wanting to put down like roots and think beyond my 10-week, you know, as a, as a freelance artist commitment to story and think about story uh, affecting city. Think about, you know, programming, programming, Big exciting seasons, not just one play, but you know, think in terms of a five-year plan, um, think in terms of seven shows a year, think in terms of being a good neighbor, a good citizen, um, how the arts intersect with um, community building. And so this job, I got headhunted. I stepped into a really rigorous interview process. And um, with each step of the interview process, became more and more interested. And voila, I've exploded my life, you know, at age 50 and have moved out and uh, away we go. And we just had an opening night on Wednesday of the first show of the season. And I'm just really, really proud of it. I didn't direct it. It's my first time, you know, being in the producer chair and making a marriage between material and guest artists and putting it out there.
1: The idea of being a freelancer is um, very well understood in the San Francisco Bay Area. And a lot of that, at least in, in my mind, has a relationship into the technology community. I'm really curious how you think about the arts community and freelance compared to the arts community and the role that you have now? Is it wildly different? Do you take a completely different approach to what shows you're going to pick, the things that you think are most important as a person who's going to be around for a long time versus a freelance?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so new at this juncture, you know, and my lens for reading and thinking about story is... Always going to be mine. But you know, I also do have, you know, an an amazing staff of dozens of people. And so there is a responsibility. You know, it's it's you know, sort of thinking in terms of, you know, as a freelancer, you can go in and go in and direct something really provocative and controversial. I just did air quotes on the radio um, or podcast, you know, and and then walk away. And you know, what will be will be. So definitely there's you know a responsibility as someone who's running an organization that, you know, people have paychecks and also getting to know an audience and what not necessarily even what they want, but maybe what they need and starting to, you know, be in conversation with that. And it's from month to month, year to year that you can push an audience, that you learn how your aesthetic fits into a hometown. But, you know, I continue to read story and think about story as... An individual.
1: I, I'm really curious how the two of you think about working together. So Andy, you've got a point of view as a native Bay Area person. Pam, you talk about the kind of different kinds of, um, my words, not yours, the different kinds of pressure that you feel as somebody who is going to create art here in the community and this relationship with the community. Like, What do you bring to the table in your relationship being a Bay Area native?
3: Well, I'm not, I'm not technically a Bay Area native. My family, we're, we're Bay Area natives, but I grew up down, down south in L.A. But I will say as a Californian that what attracted me to come back here, I had spent a number of years both uh, in college and then in my first years in my professional career in New York, learning all the stuff that a theater maker does in New York City, but with the intent of bringing it back home to California— I think what's interesting about producing theater here in California is, number one, it's outside of the New York theater mecca. So when you produce theater in a big city, in a big market that isn't New York or Broadway, you potentially could have a lot more impact on your immediate surroundings, on your immediate community. Number two, coming back here to the Bay Area, which is all about technology and innovation and the future and bringing this Live medium and artists who work in this live medium and storytelling to a city that is kind of about being in front of screens, but is about lifestyle and is about thinking about how we live our lives. That's an exciting challenge because I, I see the opportunity that, that Pam and I have at, at ACT, particularly as the premier theater in the city and the largest one in the in the area, that we aren't just an escape at eight o'clock at night where we can also be a town hall. We can also be a church and we can be neither of those things. And we have an opportunity to be a place where a community can actually be in the same room together. Those opportunities are becoming less and less now with the advent of all this technology and ways of communicating without actually physically being next to each other. So that seems to be the opportunity here outside of New
0: York, but in a major city. I just have one question for both of you. I have more than one question, but I have one very direct question. Uh, Is the art scene dying in San Francisco? Why or why not? And what would you point to as evidence?
2: I mean, I hope not. And, and, and I do think coming in to an organization and, you know, stepping in across the country, I'm going to fight for this art scene, that's for sure, and fight for the space and the conversation. Um, ACT has two theaters, uh, one in the Tenderloin and one in uh, Central Market. They're abutting neighborhoods. This is a neighborhood city, and they they have interesting, you know, connection and overlap, but they also feel very distinct the strand theater on market street feels like really interesting gateway to both the tech community and also just this neighborhood that at times feels really pressurized and feels that you know it hits the front page a lot as, you know, what are we doing about central market? And I see that as an amazing opportunity for storytelling. I mean, piggybacking on what Andy said about the town square, you know, we talk a lot about social justice um, in our organization and that's both with respect to our programs within different communities but also what stories do we want to tell? And it's not like, you know, you want to force people to, okay, turn off your cell phones and now we're going to, you know, be sort of a bummer of an evening. But it's like, let's get together and wrestle with actually what we are thinking about in story form. And I find that both a responsibility as well as just hugely exciting.
3: Yeah, and I also think that it's not that the arts feel like they're dying necessarily so much as we have a different challenge now. We can often convince people to come to the theater or come to an arts and cultural event one time, it's really about creating a habit so that they'll choose to come again. And I think, especially now where traffic is worse than it's ever been, parking's really expensive, a night out period, when you take into account, you know, gas, parking, dinner, and a show, and then of course the souvenirs at intermission and concessions, it's an expensive night out. So After you sort of convince the patron or the audience member to come once, how do you create a sense of habit in them to keep coming? Even if it's something that they love this time and might hate the next time, but you're delivering a message to them that says this is what we're trying to do and it's worth investing in and investing your time in over and over again. And I also think with how we consume entertainment, particularly with Netflix and with Hulu and even movies are becoming like your living rooms now to a certain degree, we have a big hurdle to jump, which is you have to come to us and it's expensive and it's in a neighborhood or a place that you're not used to going to. So it better be really good. Otherwise, you know, you don't have to put on a pair of pants to be entertained anymore. Right. And so that's to, that's like Cineo's mantra. By yeah, the way. right. We have to do stuff that demands putting on a pair of pants and demands sitting in traffic and demands parking. And so that's a challenge for us and the kind of work and that's a good litmus test. I mean, it's a silly one, but it's actually true.
0: You know, how would you describe your relationship with the tech community? Because, you know, one of the things that uh, we hear often on the podcast and all over the news always is, Tech's relationship to civic responsibility in San Francisco, is the tech community doing enough? And, you know, you you hear it with relation to problems like homelessness, et cetera. But what's the tech community's relationship like with the arts community right now?
3: I think what I've figured out or what we're starting to figure out is if we can try to connect the values of both of those sectors, of the art sector and the tech sector, in some organic and programmatic way, right? So we're not just trying to sell you tickets, but we're actually trying to involve you in creative process. There seems to be an emotional investment, I think, from the tech community in what we're doing. So for instance, even here at Mozilla, we have started a reading series, a new play series, where we bring our MFA actors. We have this incredible MFA program that's essentially a resident company of actors. Uh, We bring them over here to Mozilla and we work on a new play by a New York writer and LA writer. I've been to one of those shows, right? Yeah. The
0: uh, the one about the social media one.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But that started as a reading here in the lobby of Mozilla because we thought, okay, Here's a play that is about the future technology and innovation, right? So the issues are relevant. This is a play that's in process. So we are seeking the Mozilla employees' feedback on the play, the accuracy of some of the facts of the play, some of the behavior of the play, because it took place in a Huffington Post-like office, right? And we're engaging with that audience on a level that requires them to give us feedback, that requires them to tell us um, Beta tests a lot of the plays ideas that I think teaches them uh, about storytelling, which seems to be an important part of the tech life. And in return, when we end up producing that play on one of our stages, we hope that then that same cohort of Mozilla employees will then come and see the fruits of our shared labor. So that process is becoming
0: important, not just the product. Since you brought it up and we're on the subject of tech and theater, I'm curious what your relationship is like with social media, you know? you go to a show, turn off your phones, don't record, et cetera. Is that sort of sustainable? I mean, do, do you actually want people to take pictures, share? Is that helpful, hurtful? How do you think about the future of, of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is it is something that that we talk about. I mean, you know, one of the, you know, really exciting things about the Geary Theater, which is our our main stage, it has three different levels, you know, where the audience sits. There's the orchestra, you know, down ground level. There's the mezzanine. And then there actually is, you know, way up, there's the balcony. And they, they give you these really interesting vantage points. You know, if, if you're sitting way down in the orchestra, yeah, you're going to see, you know, little tears pop up and ca- capillaries and blushes, you know, and the actors and, you know, some audience members really want to have that visceral experience. Um, I am a mezzanine watcher. I like to see, you know, the, the patterns of geometry and, you know, sort of the, the conflict um, writ large and sort of the scope of story. I get to take in light and set and, you know, human interaction, but as designed writ large. And then there's the balcony, which, you know, tips you up even further. You know, are there some nights where it's like in the balcony, do we just say, yeah do it, record, you know, express yourself, you know, go out there and, you know, have that interactive, you know, I'm sort of loath to say writ large. You don't want to necessarily disturb the actors. That is true. If there's light coming from, you know, some device in the orchestra, that could annoy the performance. And, you know, it's it's that live experience. It's that science experiment of the audience affects what happens on stage? Also, just want to, you know, go back and say, we talk a lot about accessibility of our shows. We have pay-what-you-can nights for the first previews, that where the average ticket price can be under 10 bucks. We have, you know, balcony seating, I think, is around that $10, $15 mark. I mean, so, you know, we are, you know, very explicitly trying to make theater an affordable commodity
0: back to the I'm fascinated by the social media question. So have you noticed just I know anecdotally audience attention spans shortening and how do you adjust for that? Which is to say, I mean I'm sitting in this room with you for a podcast for 30 minutes and I'm already thinking about what emails do I have coming my way after we do this and, and it's fine but to sit through a two-hour show, how do you adjust for, sort of shortening attention spans, assuming that's the case.
2: I mean, you know, I certainly feel that there is, uh, you know, a lot of contemporary playwrights now write scenes that are at first blush on the page, read cinematic. Even the language, you know, can be cut to. You know, and as a director, that is a responsibility. It's a live person on stage, so cut to is meaningless. Like, I have to cycle that person off and get something else on. So huge challenge. So I do feel like story storytelling, you know, has changed and absolutely like playwrights and the artists who are building it also have a shortened attention span. So, you know, there are a lot of plays that are getting written that are, you know, bang, 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 bang. And then, you know, because in, you know, the world of story, sometimes those plays then actually sit and have like the 25 minute scene in the middle. And I kind of love that juxtaposition of it. I mean, you know, yeah, people's brains are changing. Noted about it. And that is both audience as well as artists. And it shows up on the stage. You know, I also feel there are many more contemporary plays that are intermissionless. That, you know, in, in some respects, it is at the intermission where, unfortunately, that's when we, you know, go back to our real life. And then it's hard to come back in to that second act. And so the intermissionless play of like, together, let's make a commitment as a community. And And, like, tell a story in 80 minutes. That's kind of fantastic.
1: So we're going to ask you about who you follow on social networks in particular and a recommendation to listeners of who you think they should be paying attention to. Anything, any reason, nothing's off limits. Uh, But before we get there, we're starting the season for ACT just as of a couple of days ago officially and the listeners will have a chance to hear this in advance of the season being over. So I'd like to give both of you an opportunity to say something about one of the shows coming up this season that you think might be interesting, especially in context of the conversation we've had. Just tell us a bit about one show each.
2: Coming up in our uh, Strand Theater on Market Street is a play by Jacqueline Bacchus called Men on Boats. And it is about the John Wesley Powell uh, 1869 expedition down the Green and Colorado Rivers. It is cast completely with women, very purposefully. I mean, that is on the page You know, the the playwright wanted to sort of a la Hamilton, you know, sort of explode a, a history and make the audience listen and look at this expedition in a different way and bring bodies and voices of people who were certainly around in 1869, but weren't at the center of what we think of as history and that narrative. And what is a hero? What is an explorer? And it's also, you know, this incredible mashup of contemporary as well as taken from John Wesley Powell's travelogues. And so it's this, you know, really interesting patois. And it's in our small theater space. And I'm just really proud and excited about it and can't wait to, yeah, sort of have a room go down the whitewater rapids of history and reflect on what is history. I think my pick
3: is The Great Leap. Uh, by Lauren Yee. Lauren Yee, um, this is going to be in our Geary Theater, our big theater in the spring. Lauren Yee is a locally bred San Francisco playwright from Chinatown, San Francisco. She's made it huge in New York and across the country, but she has never been produced by ACT. We have also never produced in our 50 plus year history an Asian female writer on the Geary stage. So that seems monumental in that sense. It's a basketball play about a young Chinese American basketball player here in San Francisco, Chinatown, in the 80s, who fights his way onto a university basketball team so that he can play a friendly game, an exhibition game in Beijing, right before Tiananmen Square. And so right towards the end of the Cultural Revolution. It's a very funny play. It's very alive and theatrical. And I think it says a lot about sports being one of the great equalizers between sort of culture and politics, right? That it's something that everybody can kind of get behind. Um, And it also speaks a lot about the power of young athletes and how important their voices are and how they can affect change globally just by playing a sport. So I'm really excited about that piece and and it's a real homecoming for Lauren.
0: Uh, We can't let you get away without asking you uh, the two best shows you've each seen ever. Broadway, Off-Broadway, whatever. Even if it's just the top two for the moment, we'll acknowledge that, that taste can change. But two best shows you've seen.
2: You know, memory is a, a weird thing. So, you know, best is is weird, but definitely like influential. Um, as a nine-year-old, um, I saw a musical called Runaways by uh, Liz Suedos. And my dad did not do due diligence because, yes, there were children on that stage. This was on Broadway, but they were child prostitutes. You know, it's runaways. So um, there were some nine-year-olds, but, you know, it was a great, for me, um, you know, voyeuristic, you know, hugely influential. And my dad kind of did the right thing and bought me the original cast album, became, you know, something that I would listen to, you know, ages nine through 15. You know, looking back on it, it was that best. I no idea, but definitely has stayed with me. And, you know, I remember even like the feel of that Broadway house. And this was when New York was a little bit on the skids and it felt really dangerous and fun and exciting and like heretofore not allowed.
3: Influential for me, and again, this doesn't mean the greatest thing I've ever seen, but the most influential for me was um, actually the musical Chicago, the revival still playing on Broadway, but when it first opened in 1996 and I was 13 and was dead set on becoming a sports broadcaster, uh, my mom dragged me to see it on Broadway and really didn't want to go. And I remember sitting there uh, in the mezzanine and there's a song in the middle of it, uh, All I Care About Is Love, is the big entrance of Billy Flynn, the lawyer, and he comes up from the floor, and, and he's surrounded by all these beautiful women who are just fanning him. And he's singing this incredible song in a beautiful tuxedo. And my mouth was just agape. I could not believe what I was seeing. And my mother leans over to me and she says, He gets to do this eight times a week. <laughs> and I was sold from there. So uh, I guess my life choices have been determined by the libido of a 13 year old boy. But, you know,
1: I, that's,
0: <laughs> well, I don't think that's very surprising for lots of people. Yeah. <laughs> Sunil, what about you? You have a favorite show? I guess I have a little bit of recency bias, but I saw Lion King recently on Broadway and loved it. Thought it was great. Saw it with my uh, five-year-old and three-year-old. So, oh, perfect. Um, it was just a good overall experience. I, lo- I loved it.
1: I the, the family aspect of uh, being in a theater is really, really mm. dynamic. We Both of us have kids and, and think about that quite a bit. So uh, we're almost out of time. want to ask you both one final question. Pam, first, you... On social networks, I think you're on Twitter and Instagram, Instagram as well. Wherever you are, um, who's the favorite follow that you have right now? And would you recommend that person for other people to pay attention to?
2: Yeah, uh, I guess I'm most actively on Twitter, and I use it a little bit as a news feed, but also as just a eyes wide open nap at times. Uh, I guess one of my favorite follows is uh, McFadden's Cold War. He's out of the UK, and he does these amazing photo montages of political figures kind of behaving badly. And I don't even, you know, because it's a person from um, the UK, I don't even know who some of these people are, but they're hysterical and they're beautifully composed. And his politics align with mine, so they tickle me. I'm following
3: this uh, New York comedian, Megan Amram, who's really funny and has this sort of comics comic, kind of has a really exclusive following in New York. Every day she tweets... You know, this was ever since um, Trump's first State of the Union address when all the news commentators said, today is the day Donald Trump became president, right? Every single day since then, she has tweeted, today is the day that Donald Trump has become president. Undoubtedly, every single day, I wake up in the morning and see this tweet, and it makes me laugh. And I have not stopped laughing. If you look at her feed, she tweets this every morning, and it is the perfect way to get me up in the morning.
0: (laughs) I, I don't know if I would be using that as a wake-up call myself, but, but noted. Uh, thanks, to, thanks to both of you for joining us. This was a wonderful interview. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. After our interview here, I feel kind of motivated to challenge myself to sit in a show for two hours without checking my phone. Well,
1: you don't even have to do that right now because at the moment we're recording this outro, um, I actually just saw the show Men and Boats that Pam was talking about over the weekend, and it's only an hour and a half long.
0: An hour and a half without looking at my phone.
1: It seriously an hour and a half looking, not looking at your phone. But I was actually shocked. Like the show is really funny, like physical comedy, and it's about a pretty serious subject. Like sometimes things like theater surprise you.
0: They do, and uh, the notion of giving your undivided attention to a piece of outstanding art. That's appealing to me yeah. and something that's really refreshing. Uh, I think it's pretty
1: cool. What you find when you go to the theater is that you're not just looking at a phone or a screen. A person's looking back at you. And it actually changes the entire interaction, the entire entertainment experience. So if you have a chance to go check out Men and Boats, it's still playing. It's running for another few weeks from the time that we record this. Uh, and a bunch of the new shows this season, I think, are going to be pretty awesome
0: as well. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. And we hope you check out the theater soon. Absolutely.
1: And if you love this show in the same way that I love Sunil, please uh, rank us five stars on whatever app you found us on. It actually helps the podcast out a lot.